verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Hear God's word this morning. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out to David, came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, chapter 18 is indeed one whole story, and it seemed good to break it up into parts. But we ought to remember the jealousy of Saul from the first part of this chapter, because his jealousy continues on through the end. Actually, the end not only of 1 Samuel, but the end of his own life. He doesn't seem to be able to remove himself from the jealousy in his heart. We saw that that jealousy ultimately led him to a place of fearful awe, awe of David. The author tells us that the reason Saul was afraid was because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul, as we saw in verse 12. It's questionable whether Saul actually realizes that that's why he's afraid of David. He knows he's afraid. We don't really know if in the first part of this chapter if he knew why, but certainly by verse 28, he did know. Verse 28 says that Saul knew that the Lord was with David and that he was even more afraid. The difficult thing for Saul in this is not singularly that the Lord was with David and prospering everything David was doing, but that the presence of the Lord in David's life highlighted the absence of the Lord in Saul's life. He could not handle that. 
He knew that the Lord was with him, and yet not with himself. And this is tragic. Saul was meant to be a leader of God's people, and he doesn't even have God with him. He doesn't have God on his side. If you look back at Samuel's words in chapter 10 and verse 6 and 10, I'll read that to you. So the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, Samuel says to Saul, and you will be turned into another man. And in verse 10, the spirit of God did indeed rush upon Saul. And yet after Saul's disobedience and David's anointing, chapter 16, verse 14, Samuel says, now, to, rather, the author tells us that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now that spirit was taken care of. That harmful spirit was taken care of whenever David was there playing the liar in the king's court. But we see in our, in our chapter 18 today that that spirit returned even after the fact. And then upon his return and upon David's attempts to soothe Saul yet again, Saul instead decides to try to shish kebab David to the wall. He tries twice to hurl a spear at him from not a great distance and misses. His jealousy has overtaken him. The sharp tooth of jealousy has lodged deep into Saul's heart. We know jealousy is a debilitating sin. And so today as we conclude Saul's first rounds of attempts at getting rid of David, we see his hostile mind as he lashes out against the sovereign will of the Lord. And so our title this morning is Hostility and Humility. You can kind of imagine which each word goes with which character. Saul's attempts to get rid of David revolve in this part of our chapter 18 around the idea of marriage. He hopes to trap David by offering his daughter to him as a political pawn. So after what we saw in chapter 14, where Saul was ready to kill his own son Jonathan because of the foolish oath that he himself had made, if you remember that, it was when he said, Cursed be anyone who eats food today until I am avenged on my enemies. Jonathan hadn't heard that vow and ends up eating some of the honey because he was exhausted from the hike. The soldiers were exhausted. Saul, in the next chapters, in the next passages, ready to kill his own son, Jonathan, even though Jonathan hadn't heard that oath. So we have, in this passage, Merab being offered as a political pawn. We have Jonathan being subject to the will of the king, his own father's rash judgment. And we can tell very easily that Saul is not going to win any Father of the Year awards. We see that his mind is set on hostility at the end of our passage today. If you would look down at the end of chapter 18 and in verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, And that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Isn't it fascinating how jealousy ends Saul in a position of fear and of increasing fear and now to continual hostility. He will be David's enemy continually. Now, this may very well simply be a remark of the author saying, hey, get ready, because Saul's never going to relent in trying to take David out, even when he says he will let up and let him live. But it also seems the right points to make it clear that Saul was at a crossroads because his jealousy had so overtaken his heart 
and so unleashed his hostility against David that it seemed there was no way of going back. Now, if we return back to chapter 17, we see that it was at least being said around in the crowd, the rumor was that whoever killed the giant Goliath would get to marry the princess, would live a tax-free life, and would be given many, many riches. It may, in fact, be that that was just simply a rumor, but it may also be that Saul made that promise and didn't follow through with it. It's not entirely clear. But what is clear is that David has no means of paying the dowry or the bride price that the culture demanded the the future husband to pay his future father-in-law. So Saul makes it a little bit easier on him in one sense. David confesses, who am I and who are my relatives, my family's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king. He says, I'm of no social status, certainly have no money. So Saul says, here's what you need to do. Be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Saul sees this as an easy way of dealing with the problem of David taking all of his limelight. Why should I try to kill him myself when there's a whole army of Philistines out there who would really like to do him the same courtesy he did to Goliath? It makes perfect sense in Saul's hostile mind to just let the Philistines take care of David. But do you see how jealousy and hostility have driven Saul not only deeper into his own desires, but deeper into his own destruction? I mean, how was it that Israel had gotten the lead against the Philistines? The Philistines had been ruling over Israel for years and years. They had so badly defeated Saul over and over again. But when David shows up, the momentum shifts. And now, in order to protect his own image, Saul is arranging the death of the one clearly sent to defeat Saul's enemies for him. It's very ironic. Of course, the matter with Merab doesn't work out. And again, the author doesn't tell us why. Saul is just a wishy-washy guy, I guess. For some unknown reason, Saul backs out of the plan. He doesn't engage with David's negotiations. That is what David was doing when he says, hey, who am I? Who's my father's house? He's opening up negotiations to say, I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot to offer. What's your price? He doesn't even really go any further than that. For some reason, he just decides to give Merab, his daughter, to Adriel the Maholothite for a wife. And we don't even hear from Adriel ever again after this. It may be that this is, as we move down to verse 20, that we might find the reason for why Saul kind of backed off. In verse 20, it says that Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul... And the thing pleased him. McCall now, not Marab, would be a snare, a trap that was used by hunters with bait for David. He'd be able to catch David with McCall as the bait because although the shepherd boy was poor, he was also a really great warrior. Saul knew this. So Saul reiterates and actually specifies. First he says, hey, be valiant for me, fight the Lord's battles, which is an ironic thing for Saul to say as he's doing his own will and masking it as the Lord's will. But now he says, the bride price is going to be 104 skins from the Philistines. Just kind of gross. It's one of those days you kind of wish we did have junior worship. But uncircumcision was the means of Israel mocking their enemies. They were always the uncircumcised. We saw David say this about Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised dog? 
right? Saul figures David is falling for his trap. He's given him a route to be able to become the son-in-law. David is interested in this. It says that he was pleased about this. And he was ready to become the king's son-in-law. So, how could he take down 100 Philistines and live, Saul thinks. We're not surprised at all. The Lord is, in fact, with David. And, of course, he comes back and presents the trophy to the king. And he doesn't just present what he was asked to present. He doubles it. Specifically, the author says, before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men. Now, this was not a showing-off tactic of David. He's not trying to say, huh, 100 foreskins? Let me get you 200 real quick. That's nothing. That's not what he's doing. He's actually trying to honor Saul. David's fights with the Philistines, at least at this point in the story, are about him going against the Lord's enemies on behalf of the Lord and, against, and, and on behalf of the Lord's anointed king, Saul. David knows that he's been anointed to be the next king, but he's not going to embrace that title until the Lord actually puts him in the position. Until then, he is set on honoring Saul. And seemingly at this point, David doesn't know that Saul has plans to get rid of him. Now you might say, okay, what about the two spears in the wall, right? When David finds out later on, as we'll see in the coming weeks, when David finds out that Saul is definitely trying to kill him, he starts to make plans to kind of get out of the way, right? Up to this point, it seems likely that David saw the two, excuse me, the two spears going into the wall as Saul just kind of having a bad day, you know? You have a bad day, you kick the dog, Saul has a bad day, he tries to kill his minstrel. You know, this is the life of a king, this is the life of a court minstrel, this is where David is. You can imagine as David comes in with this trophy, this grotesque trophy, as a matter of fact, that Saul looks at him and says, okay, David, good work, have a happy wedding, and someone please get this out of here. Saul looks at this as a defeat. He doesn't see in it the opportunity to gain a noble and good son-in-law. He doesn't see in it the opportunity to make his daughter very happy because McCall loved David. All he sees is his failure compounded on yet another failure to get rid of David. And it is ironic and tragic, as we said already, because Saul realizes, at least at this point for sure, he realizes that the Lord is with David. And with that realization, he has to realize that not only is he hostile against David, but he's in truth hostile against the Lord himself. Saul isn't a king who's concerned with the will of God. He doesn't care about the good of his people. And he doesn't even care about the Philistine threat. Remember, the plan was, I'm going to put him against the Philistines so the Philistines could kill him. He's, he's kind of setting his own death up in this. Because the Philistines will end up killing Saul later on. In his mind, it would be better to be rid of David than to be rid of the Philistines. And this is the hostile mind of humanity. It would be better for us to be rid of God and his requirements on us than to be rid of all the tragedies and wrong that we see in this life. Saul had so abandoned anything that resembled what the Lord had called him to in his position as king. And he has become hostile to the Lord. 
It's not only inevitable when we're bitten by the sharp tooth of jealousy that we become hostile to the Lord, but the Bible teaches us again that hostility to the Lord is our default position when we enter this world because of our sin. In Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So we find Saul. His mind is completely on fleshly desires. That is the goals and the purposes of a mind centered on himself. Contrary to Jonathan's exaltation of the hero David, Saul becomes jealous of him and wants to get rid of him. He does not want to highlight David anywhere. He wants to take the light away from him entirely. Hostility towards God is not always obvious. Again, look at David. He doesn't really seem to get what's going on. He doesn't realize in this offer of marrying the king's daughter that Saul is actually trying to kill him. And I don't think any of us would, right? You get called before the king and the king says, I have something to tell you. You know, McCall, she really likes you. And I kind of like you too. Why don't you go ahead and marry her? You can be my son-in-law can be brought into the royal family and earn a spot in royal successions should Jonathan not be able to fulfill that role. See, Saul knows that the kingdom has been torn from him. Chapter 15 definitely happened. But he's acting as though it hasn't been torn from him. In fact, his grip on the kingdom is tighter than it's ever been because he knows it is not truly his. So this hostility that he has against David, hostility against the Lord is not immediately obvious. Did you, um, this past week, did you follow the story around the Burning Man event? I just heard about this uh, a couple days ago. So 70,000 members of this group called Burning Man gathered, as they typically do annually in the Nevada desert. And their website says that guided by the values expressed by the the 10 principles, doesn't that sound like a little bit of a ripoff? 10 commandments, 10 principles. Maybe go with 11 or something, try to one-up the Old Testament. Burning Man is a global ecosystem of artists, makers, and community organizers who co-create art, events, and local initiatives around the world. Most recognizably, tens of thousands of burners, as they're called, gather annually to build Black Rock City, a participative temporary metropolis in the Nevada desert. Well, I had to find out what these 10 principles were. Most of them were kind of boring. But one of them was really interesting. I think it was the third or fourth one of the 10 principles was radical self-reliance. By the way, they loved using the word radical. Everything was radical on that webpage. It was like diving back into the 90s where everything was radical. But the principle of radical self-reliance said that Burning Man encourages the individual to listen to these words, to discover, exercise, and rely on their inner resources. There isn't anything immediately hostile towards God in this statement, is there? It doesn't say anything like, we don't care about religion, we don't care about the Bible. It doesn't have anything blatantly obvious. In fact, this is, in some ways, very American, isn't it? 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Make it on your own. Again, Burning Man encourages the individual to discover, exercise, and rely on their inner resources. Well, if I'm to radically rely on myself, that must mean much more than doing my job every day, being responsible for my things and my dependence, and so on. Radical self-reliance would have to look beyond that and be more like the famous poem Invictus. Do you remember Invictus? We've considered it before. William Henley closed that poem with these words. It matters not how straight the gates, how charged the punishments the scroll, charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Do you hear in those words the rejection of the consequences of sin? It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. Open up the scroll of my life. Tell me all the charges. I don't care. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The consequences of sin, rejected. The requirements of righteousness, it matters not how straight the gate. I mean, this is most definitely a nudge towards the New Testament. Jesus talking about him being the narrow way that few find. He says, it doesn't matter, William Henley writes, it doesn't matter how straight the gate is. A mindset on radical self-reliance is by default rebellion against the creator. Ironically, or maybe something else, the Burning Man event then faced torrential downpours of rain. Did you hear about that? They got stuck in there many days after they were supposed to be there. And they were in the desert too. So you don't get torrential amounts of rain. They found out it's hard to rely on yourself when you're stuck in the desert without enough supplies. See, that, that radical self-reliance is at the heart of rebellion against the creator. And I think that they were given, a, and listen, I don't know. I, I'm not one to be like, and the Lord sent that storm. I don't know. But I do know that he's in charge of them. And I do think it's at the very least ironic that they got rained out in the desert. Church, it may not be that we are openly hostile to God this morning. We may not be openly hostile to his will with our words or our direct actions. But let's put ourselves in Saul's place. Again, he's not doing anything overtly, obviously against David or the Lord himself. But his motives matter immensely in this story, don't they? Church, we cannot be those who say in any context that the means justify the ends, right? We ma it matters to us how a person thinks and what their launching pad is in before their actions or what the end results are. Saul didn't accidentally do something nice for David here. The Lord is preserving him in the same way that the Lord preserved David when those two spears went at his head. But for us this morning, we should ask ourselves, when the thing that matters most to us is threatened, how do we respond? What is our default go-to? When we get laid off of work or when we don't get the promotion that we worked really hard for, when our kids are still sick on day five, six, seven, eight, when my marriage isn't where I'd like it to be, what do I do? Do I work to discover, exercise, and rely on my own inner resources? Saul had this as a serious problem. 
The Lord was no longer with him. And so this was what was left to him, his own inner resources. And when we operate outside of the presence of God, we are not only left to draw from our own inner resources, but we're going to do exactly what Burning Man encourages. We're going to discover, we're going to exercise, and we're going to rely on those inner resources. So what is left to you when all you have is your inner resources? The Bible says that if Christ is not amongst our resources or our one true resource, we are left with nothing but hostility before God. We're acting out our posture before the Lord and our words and actions to those around us. We end up hostile not only to God, but everyone else. Well, let's look at the humility of the Messiah. That is, in fact, what David is. This word Messiah that we attribute to Jesus, of course, as the true and great Messiah. David was also a Messiah because he was anointed to be the king of Israel. So he's a shadow of Jesus. And he expresses some really obvious humility in this passage. Listen to what Richard Baxter says. He's an old Puritan writer. He says, the very design of the gospel is to abase us, that is to bring us low. And the work of grace is begun and carried on in humility. Humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creature. It is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not humble. Now, you know, as I read Baxter say, humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, and it is September ornament, I'm thinking Christmas. Because I'm always thinking about Christmas. But he says humility is not like an ornament you put on your tree and you go, oh, hey, look, here's this memoir from baby's third Christmas, right? That you look at for a moment and go, isn't that sweet? And then move on to the next Christmas activity. He says it is an essential part of the new creature. It is essential to the one who, as we read in Galatians 2, has been crucified with Christ and that all the old things have passed away and everything is new. Essential to that nature is humility. So as Saul's hostility may not be obvious to those around him and yet obvious to us as we read, so too is the humility of David. What sets him apart from Saul is, of course, what? Presence of God. This is why when we question, oh, I'm sorry, in this presence of God, he, as Baxter says, is getting this matter of humility worked into the essential part of who he is as a new creature in God's work. This is why when we question our own standing before the Lord and we examine our own hearts, we are to ask if there's any fruit in our lives that show the work of God. David's humility, then, is the mark of the work of God in his life and is meant to be ours as well. David recognizes that nothing he has is due to his own inner resources. He's free from the need to discover, exercise, and rely on them. He's the one God chose because God decided to choose him. God says to Moses in the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy. It's unconditional. Why did he choose David? Because David was so special or impressive? No. He chose him because he chose him. So it is for us, church. Our hope is the same. Apart from the choosing of God and the presence of God that comes with that choosing, 
we'd be left to deal with God in nothing but our hostility, only with our inner resources to work with. So David consistently embraces his lowly position before Saul. Earlier in chapter 18, when Saul is tormented spiritually, as we mentioned, happened again, David, instead of thinking a court minstrel position is too lowly for him, I mean, he cut off Goliath's head for crying out loud. He still takes up the lyre and seeks to soothe Saul's troubled mind. Instead of demanding the princess's hand as his reward in chapter 17, as he heard from everyone else, David humbly confesses that he is unable to honor the bride price for Michal. And then, in the same attitude of humility, takes up the challenge of Saul to fight his battles for him. You might remember, we've quoted C.S. Lewis on this before, that biblical humility isn't thinking less of yourself so much as thinking of yourself less. You might think, isn't that just like C.S. Lewis to just say all the same words in different order and make us think it's smart? But it is smart. Thinking less of yourself is very different than thinking of yourself less. Thinking less of yourself would be that self-abasement that really just draws all the attention to yourself low instead of high. It's the, the Christian who goes around proclaiming his great humility and how the Lord has so stricken him and burdened him and, oh, I'd love to share with you what God has been revealing about my own heart and how wicked I truly am and et cetera, et cetera. No, humility in the biblical sense is not thinking less of yourself, but it is more about thinking of yourself less, giving less time in your mind to your own matters. And is that not the solution to the hostility of Saul's mind? He is consumed with himself. There's nothing else for him to think about. So as David walks out the plan of God in his life, we see a difference made by the nearness of God. It is the nearness of God that causes humility in our hearts. And I would add this morning that as hostility comes to us from outside, which is less of our emphasis this morning, I think we should think more deeply about the hostility in our own hearts first. But as we face hostility from others who accuse us and who threaten us and who are wondering why we did the thing that we did that we, they didn't want us to do, it is our nearness to God that grants us the humility to receive that and to not lash out in kind, to not take a hostile stance against others, but rather to see that the work done in our own hearts is the deep need of every other person as well, however hostile they may be to us. So let's compare these two. Saul was in a position as a king where he was meant to serve the true king of Israel, but his self-absorption and his self-reliance made him hostile to the Lord. And from that, he just compounded failure upon failure upon failure. David, in contrast, was in a position as the newly anointed, but not yet crowned king of Israel. And as he waited on the Lord in humility, that posture advanced his success and his satisfaction in the Lord alone. So which of these two characters best paints the picture of your mind before the Lord's sovereign will today? Is it the hostility of Saul, who is so focused and consumed with their own plans, their own desires, and ready to take out anybody who could possibly threaten those things? 
Or is it David's posture of humility, wherein he relies solely on the Lord's will and guidance? You know, David's response to the sovereign will of the Lord was humility, of course, but it wasn't his own doing. Remember, David is where he is because God chose him for it. And that choosing, and from that, the embrace of his presence in our lives produces humility. And so a mind that is rightly oriented to God's will above our own is one of our deepest needs. David needed the true and better Messiah as much as we do today. Because only because of what Christ, from David's perspective, what Christ would actually come and do at the cross. And from our perspective, for what he has done at the cross, can we have a mind that is not set on the flesh and therefore hostile to God, but a mind that is set on the spirit and receives life and peace and hope. At the cross, Jesus Christ faced the hostility of this world with massive humility. And he is now, because of that humility, Paul tells us, that he's seated far above all rule and authority. Man, every time I get excited, the coughing comes. Pardon me for that. One cough, that's it. Not gonna do any more. Again, Jesus faced the hostility of this world with humility, and because of that humility, he is now seated high above all rule and authority. The exact opposite of what the world that would crucify the Son of God would have expected. We're gonna lift him up and humiliate him, but it is in fact in his humiliation that his humility his mind before the Lord that was less about himself and more about his heavenly father was displayed and so he is exalted. He endured the hostility and overcame temptation to violently defend what was most precious to him. And instead of coming with a sword to take what was his, he comes and lays his life down for the glory of his father and the salvation of our souls. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, we actually read this in Sunday school with the kids earlier. Paul says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he that is Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we must set our minds on these things. We must set our minds on the spirit of God and his leading in our lives. Because of Jesus, church, we are, now, we are able now to set our minds on the spirit as we see in the humility of David and as Paul taught in Romans 8 again, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. That is because of what Christ has done for us. We're not to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It is that adoption that the Holy Spirit who resides in everyone who believes in Christ, that adoption is communicated to us moment by moment. And it should produce in us not a radical self-reliance, but a radical humility. God has made us sons and daughters of his own, and he has chosen us for that. You know, when you choose to have kids, you can't choose the kids you have, can you? But in adoption, what God does 
is he sees us where we are. He sees us in our hostility, in our rebellion, in our jealousy, and he chooses to bring us in and adopt us that we might, by the spirit on whom we set our minds, cry out, Abba, Father. Like a little newborn baby crying for his daddy. So we have to become hostile against our hostility. Again, Paul writes, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen, a Puritan writer, summed this up by saying, kill sin or sin will be killing you. Remember, Saul's hostility was self-destructive. He was trying to get rid of the one who ultimately would save him from his enemies if he would let him, if he would be humble. Instead, he was hostile. Where might, where might we be hostile in our minds today before the Lord? Is there something in your life or perhaps the trajectory of your life that's contrary to the Lord's will? Is there something you're holding on tightly as if to say, Lord, if I don't get this promotion, if this financial struggle doesn't ease up, if my test results don't come back the way I want them to, then what? He is God and we are not. We may, in fact, feel stuck in a place that God intends for us to be. We need to be watching out for the hostility of our old selves. Can you see ways that you may become hostile to the plan of God because his plan seems different than what you would like? I'm going to invite you to a time of group prayer now and um, ask that we have some questions put up here. Or prayer prompts, rather. The first one being, do you need to accept something that the Lord is doing? Do you need to just accept it and say, okay, Lord, I don't like this, but it's something you're doing, and therefore I'm going to put my hands off of it and trust you. Are you willing to then, of course, trust that he will give you grace as you humble yourself to his will? Secondly, would you pray for our church that in temptations to hostility with each other, we would humble ourselves with a view to holiness and unity. And then thirdly, do you know someone who is walking in hostility before the Lord? This isn't your opportunity to gossip about that person in that prayer group, but perhaps you need to take some time and seek the Lord on behalf of someone else, that the Lord would humble them in kindness and perhaps even prepare you to share the love of Christ with them.